You know, most problems in healthcare are fixed already. Primary care is already cured on the fringes, reversing burnout, physician shortages, bad business models, forced buyouts, factory medicine, high deductible insurance that doesn't pay docs and is totally inaccessible to most of the employees. The big squeeze of always accelerated costs and decelerated reimbursements. Meet those making a difference with the host, Ron Barshop, CEO of Beacon Clinics. Welcome to Primary Care Cures. Welcome to the show. Today's show features another visionary who gets things done. And he sees things on a very grand scale, as you're about to learn. Um, Dave and I met at the University of Texas Business School back in the day, and he ran this giant room of computers that I'm guessing today would be probably on one server. They were mission critical to not only UT, but to the business school's mission. And he was kind of that genius behind the curtain of two more geniuses that one later became the chancellor of the university, which was uh, Dr. Bill Cunningham. And the second is probably the greatest man I've ever met, and I'm suspecting Dave would agree with that statement, Dr. George Kosmetsky. Uh, Dave's later work took him as he advanced out of the university world into his own company to consult with the finest companies and the most respectable security clearances you could ever imagine. Uh, the bigger the problem, the more complex, the more Dave Smith is simply fired up. And he sees things that we mortals don't from a sort of a 20,000 square foot view, which is perfect for this podcast today. I'm really proud to know Dave. So our country regained the lead from Japan and Korea and the semiconductor industry thanks to Dave Smith. He was one of the principal designers and architects that established the CIA's innovative organization called NQTEL. Maybe we'll hear more about that. Uh, this organization helped bring innovation back into the intelligence community and really lead the world. So Dave's that guy. He is in fact better known though for his forecasts and his roadmaps for virtually rethinking all of DOD and the Intel community. Uh, he's led industry, regional and national efforts to establish new competitive environments in so many different fields. We don't have time for that to even go there, but Dave's that guy. I really want to get him drunk at Franklin's barbecue sometime soon and hear these stories because it could be a nice long evening. But uh, how would Dave, the visionary operator, cure the woes of primary care and by extension healthcare, this cluster we call healthcare? He's in it to win it, and he'll talk about that today. So meet Dave Smith. He's a futurist, he's a doer of great deeds, a thinker of great thoughts the CEO of Strategic Pathway, and a fellow at the IC Squared Institute, which Dr. George Kosmetsky founded. Welcome, Dave, to the show. After a three-year gap in connections back in Austin, uh, Franklin, sounds pretty good to you? Oh, it does. And um, I would say that if we have to drink with each other, we should drink tequila, since of all the spirits, it's the healthiest. I have um, a collection of 20 of the finest tequilas that you can buy. I don't drink anything but that. So you are naming my drink. Oh, we're, we're on the same page together with that. And uh, thank you for the introduction. The other one that I think is applicable to our discussion here is I'm also a fellow of the Society of Design and Process Engineering Sciences, which is a society that uh, Dr. Kosmetsky also helped found. But it's all about complexity, uh, chaos theory, and systems of systems theory. 
And when you look at healthcare today, it is the perfect example of a system of systems theory. And that's one of the challenges as we try to look at how to improve healthcare and work through it. We're looking at it in components are a system, but we don't really understand that it's a system of systems. Well, let's let's talk about healthcare. We can have such a broad conversation here and such a long one. What are the top two or three problems that you think are solvable in healthcare today from this um, 10,000 foot view that you have? Uh, one of the very big problems in healthcare is, you know, you, you hear the term interoperability. Well, interoperability is not really the big problem. What's the big problem is, is how do we manage data and how do we get healthcare to move to a set of platforms where data standards could be applied, but even more importantly, the data is held within the right format for others to use. Uh, we're beginning to see in healthcare where Internet of Things type of applications where we're collecting and streaming data from all these devices, the sensors, uh, the medical devices within a clinic or within a hospital, but yet we're trying to force that data into fields like on an Excel spreadsheet in a relational database or a NoSQL database. Uh, we're, we're not adapting our IT infrastructure and the way we practice medicine to the advances that we've made in so many of these areas as we've enhanced uh, sensors, as we've moved computing out to the edge of the cloud, as we've moved it embedded into these distributed devices. Those should come together and then that will help lessen the load for the primary care physician, for the lab technicians and others who are struggling under this barrier of a multitude of systems, but yet where you have to, to do the same test over and over because we just do not have the ability to transport data. My understanding uh, from a press release yesterday, and I'm not a data scientist or a health data follower, frankly, is that the government is now stepping out of the way and opening up basically a, a giant Linux system for the healthcare system. They're not saying you have to use this or that. And they're trying to get out of the way and they're a little bit ahead of the industry. Is there a, they are. any barriers that the government could further release that could cause um, a smoother transition to the world you want? Well, there, there's, there's appropriate places for the government and others. I think when you look at some of the things they did is they implemented level one, level two, level three quality standards. Uh, it was a helpful getting that transition started, but then they went too far as they did the level three quality standards. Uh, the industry government-led initiative on FIRE Fast healthcare interoperable resources, I think, is a great example how you can use, uh, again, a Kosmetsky term here, the technopolis concept of getting academia, government, and industry working together to solve tough problems. The, the FIRE data model, which is going to help do part of this, I think is an excellent approach and example of how they've dialed back things around the quality measures but still are trying to keep a framework in place that was jointly developed using group intelligence uh, to get the job done. If I'm a physician, just a 
typical primary care physician practicing today, how is all this going to affect my world? Right now, I'm having to deal with EHR mandates that are driving me crazy, systems that won't let me just speak into them and record what I need, um, forcing me to turn away from my patient for half my visit. There's nothing in the current electronic uh, medical record world that seems to be um, up to date with what's going on around the rest of the world in healthcare. There's just headaches and more headaches. And what, am, what, what, are, what are physicians going to see on the ground in the next two to three years that may solve some of these problems that they're having trying to be a physician and not a secretary? Yeah, great question. You know, I know number of physicians who actually have gone out and hired court reporters to go around with them as they visit patients to where they are not distracted by the EHR or the other elements there. Uh, your, your answer to your question is really multifold. One of them is we need to see our electronic systems designed from a standpoint of meeting the, the doctors care about as opposed to meeting the requirements of the developers who are, are developing the software. When I've looked at different EHRs and others in the software industry, the most common thing I see is the software was designed by the developers, the programmers saying, this is what we think the doctor needs instead of the other way around. The other thing is, is you're seeing new advancements in technology that are going to really help you get there. You know, a bunch of us have played with, for example, the smart speakers, speakers like Alexis and Siri and others. But why, I don't know if you've noticed it, but they've gotten a lot smarter. And we're seeing this trend really pick up now. If I look at smart speakers in the United States today and in China, for example, it's now passed well above 20% user base where they're beginning to learn enough. And if we create lexicons like we began to do, where you take patient speak, doctor speak, and insurance speak, and refine those smart speaker technologies into the exam room, into the OR, into other places like that, it's gonna take the typing elements away for the most part. You know, the places where you've seen speech transcription, even the best ones that you pay a lot of money for still have errors, and they don't really use the same approaches as you see in some of these smart speakers. So that's one area. Well, you know, it's interesting because I can think of, like, I think of Jarvis in Iron Man. He gives a guy superpowers. He has complete information and there's no reason why IBM Watson can't be the Jarvis for every surgeon, every diagnostic test, to give a doctor in an exam room superpowers to basically have perfect information when they're talking to their patient. And there's not going to be misdiagnoses. There's not going to be unnecessary tests ordered. It's going to be almost a perfect world with, again, I think of the doctor with superpowers. That, I think, could happen today. And is, I know Watson is being prepared for that. What you're speaking to, though, is taking a dragon speak plus plus and, and turning it into something that is not clunky. And it seems like that promise has been out there for five years, 10 years, that we're not going to have a clunky, we're going to find, this will be the year, you know. And we're, here we are in 2019 still talking about clunky EHR uh, speakers. 
but you, you've hit it partially on, on the head in that we have to change some of the approaches to it. I have been using Dragon Dictate for, well, probably 15, 16 years now. So I've trained mine pretty well. But what I find is, for example, when I'm using Siri on my phone, it actually understands me better than Dragon Dictate that I have trained for over a decade. Amazing. Well, there's the problem right there in a nutshell. What problems are getting actually solved in your, again, 20,000 foot view that are gonna make a difference for either doctors or patients, or just let's call it the healthcare system as a whole, as an ecosystem? Uh, one of the things that I really see that I'm very happy about is we've seen some of the leading health organizations begin to tackle the problems of how do I deal with a broad population? Uh, you know, there's a, a healthcare group here in Texas uh, that I know it's down in Houston with Iran, up in Austin, San Antonio, and Dallas, and others called WellMed. What they have done is is really interesting to me is they've built their system where they've started out with what are the key things my patients need. Many of their patients are older patients, so they've enlisted many different ways to do home health care. They've enlisted ways to go and be able to help their patients with medication adherence, which is a, a bigger problem than I ever realized it was until I started digging in. You know, almost half the prescriptions given are never filled. That's hard to do hard health care if you don't have that. You, you see other things where you're beginning to put not only labs in a box in the clinics, but there are now AI-enhanced machines that for the most common prescriptions will package it individually for patients there in a clinic, now using a different business organization to do it, but still there in the clinic where you're combining the elements where the physicians, the PAs, the nurses can do some hands-on time with the patients who don't understand the requirements around it. Uh, the same thing with them is they have orchestrated their system to where they can geographically campaign uh, with where they see challenges. You know, um, places where patients within their domain are, are not getting the right test run at the right times and things. And they've taken it where in the past that was done with post-it notes stuck to the receptionist wall, the nurse's wall, to where they've now automated into a system where it can be tackled as a team approach. What I think the electronics has done in healthcare is over the last 20 years, it has taken and broken down the team to such a standpoint that it was individuals staying late to do the work versus working collaboratively and thinking of the patients first. Do you have a positive view? I look at WellMed, they were born in San Antonio with uh, basically a diabetes capital of the world. And we have, um, you're saying now well, they're gonna have better management, better labs, better pharmaceutical, um, actually compounding it sounds like in the clinic as what, where the potential is heading with AI. But do you see, do you have hope for the future for the patient and for the doctor that this world is going to get potentially simpler with technology or technology actually complicating things more 
until we get to that inflection point. Ron, I, I think you, you have to see the stages for it. Uh, technology tends to go through stages that repeat and build up on each other. It, it's like your car today. In reality, you're driving a massive supercomputer today with thousands of sensors in it. But we don't think of that now because of all the things in our car have made it easier. They give us warnings. They, they help us navigate to where we're going. They individually adjust the, the settings. Uh, you know, most people don't realize when they sit down in the front seat of the car, they're actually being weighed so that the airbags know how much force to use. I think we're beginning to see that coming over into healthcare today. The, the, the challenge with healthcare, and this sounds so counterintuitive, is healthcare is actually a lagger in adopting technology that can be heavily leveraged. Can I tell you my theory why? Go ahead. 55 or older, guess what percentage of physicians are 55 or older in America today? It's probably above 60%. Um, well, it's a, it's a third. A fourth are 60 or older. And my older physician clients are still, they're not using EHR. They're using file systems that they're running, you know, it's a, what they call the tennis shoe network, right? I so understand that one. They're not um, going to adopt this new technology. So that's a third. This Maybe some of the 55-year-olds are going to, but when you're 10 to 15 years away from retiring, and you're burned out and you don't want to spend money. I mean, you mentioned the scribe earlier. Let me walk you through the economics of the scribe and why 90% of the doctors aren't doing it, although it seems like a, a layup. A scribe in Texas, in Houston or Austin or San Antonio, is about 20 bucks an hour. A typical physician, primary care physician, can see about four patients, maybe five, if they're a factory medicine uh, quick change artist. But four patients at 60 to 70 bucks a patient takes you to we'll call it 200 bucks, 250 bucks. Uh, their margins are about five to 7%. Well, five to 7% ain't 20 bucks. 20 bucks on 240 takes all that 5% away. So they're essentially working for free and they're not making a salary. They're not, they're not, they're netting nothing out of their practice. If that, and I'm just taking you through a typical day, typical hour, typical scribe cost. Um, so that's why a lot of people don't have somebody following them around a court reporter following around is they simply can't afford it. It doesn't make economic sense. The, the economics really aren't there at all. If you look at it on a traditional uh, primary care office visit. So what is your theory? Why doctors are not adopting technology or why Medicare medical world is not adopting technology. I've given you my old man, old woman theory. Well, you know, uh, I'm a few years older than you are, so I can fit in your demographics there. Mm -hmm. uh, my, my reason is I see it as I've gone out and visited with doctors. One of the key tenets as I look at how to solve technology problems or future problems, like in some of the organizations you mentioned at the top of the show, is I want to understand the careabouts of them. And careabouts can be both tangibles and intangibles. What is very interesting in healthcare is we get those two confused because the intangibles are really what matters a lot to patients, but we're recording just the tangibles. And, and I think you're going to see that most of the doctors I know in their 60s 
use a lot of technology at home that, like I said, they use it in their cars. They use it every place except the office. And I think part of that is healthcare is an industry where the doctors have to do lifelong learning. But I think the, the way they were taught through medical school and post-medical education is they separated their medical knowledge from the knowledge they're uh, learning in the rest of their life. And somehow, and we see this with some of the things being done, for example, here in Austin at the New Dell Medical School, those are being forced together in, in the way the new doctors are coming out. You see the same thing up at Johns Hopkins and some others, where like here in Austin, the doctors actually have a course where they have to write a simple program to get information back from their patients. And that's part of the medical degree now. I got to tell you, I went to Harvard Medical School to visit my daughter-in-law when she was going there a couple of years ago. And I sat in a classroom that looked like something I sat in in 1979 when I met you. It was chalkboards. I didn't see a lot of electronics around the room. It was uncomfortable desks. Uh, it was it was a it was a theater made in the 60s or 50s and hasn't been renovated. And I said, Harvard's got the greatest endowment on planet Earth. Why have they not got like a Star Trek scene here instead of something from a bygone era? And she said, the money that comes into Harvard endowments is coming from engineers, business. It's not going to medical schools. Doctors don't make a good enough living to live leave a legacy in their health in the, into the healthcare uh, ecosystem into the particularly Harvard Medical School. Well, it, you, you hit a, a very good point, though, is that if you actually go back and think about the new classrooms when you were a student, they all had screens in them. That university, the College of Business there, was one of the very first ones to project computer screens in the classroom. As you begin to go and look into the new places, you're right. This, most universities today teach the Socratic method way, which hasn't changed since the times of Socrates. But we, we have to begin to look at the newer ways to do that. And when we're going to see that shift, particularly, I think, healthcare, again, as we talked about earlier, they're a laggard in adoption. And, you know, I can see, I see doctors making a lot of investment in technology companies. Uh, some of the things I'm doing now is advising some companies where they're doing things like in silicon, early drug molecule discovery and things. And, and doctors are putting a considerable amount of money into that company and others. Um, but what you don't see them is going back to their education roots and supporting it there. Why? I think most of them are frustrated when they get back and like you did, go back and look at what's available elsewhere today. And they go back and look at where they went to medical school. And they, they have to figure out how they went from using rocks and sticks to do things to the advanced equipment they have today. I gotta tell you, if I'm a physician and I've made that done well in the business world and I wanna go back to Harvard, the, the rooms she did show me were the operating theaters that were just magnificent now I'm talking four years ago, they're out of date four years later. You, you look at what's happening in the surgical theater here in Houston, Texas. These rooms today in 2019 don't look like the rooms of 2014. They're, 
that's changing so fast, you know, and the immunotherapy uh, is requiring a lot less invasive and uh, arthroscopic. It's all going non-invasive. It's all going at a molecular level and a nanotechnology level. And what what a oncologist learned at Harvard her year is not going to be relevant today unless they really keep up. So it's even, if I were going back and making a donation to Harvard, I would realize, well, wait a minute, in five more years, my donation is going to be worthless. These rooms I'm building, this technology I'm adding is not going to be as current as something new that we don't maybe foresee. Well, Ron, you, you, you've given me two points to answer that one. The first one is, and again, I'm going to pick on healthcare a little bit here. Healthcare tends to plan for the future by looking in the rearview mirror. Yes. That doesn't look out its windshield. And particularly with the areas where the technology half-lives are as short as you were talking about, you not only have to look at your windshield, you have to look beyond where the headlines are showing to be active there. And most of our universities, as you look particularly in, and I'm going to pick not just on healthcare, but actually in quite a few of the sciences now, they're planning for the future by looking in the rearview mirror. The other thing I want to do, and, and I'm going to uh, self-brag, but for a reason on this one. In 1999, the last issue of the year for Business Week, I was one of six futurists chosen to ask what the next hundred years was going to be like. And I said, this century we're in now is going to be all about the age of bio. And some of it's from biological computing, biological storage, to actually the places we're going through now with not only stem cell, but regenerative healthcare, the way we can now target things, the way I can go and use CRISPR and other devices to make proactive things to prevent later problems. That is the big change I see that's going to help pull healthcare out. Also, I know there's a lot of business pressures on it, but simple applications of telemedicine, not necessarily for critical, but to handle some of the routines where that doctor during that hour window can go from four patients to maybe billing nine or 10 for short consultations by telemedicine, where the, those do move faster and they answer many of the problems you see scheduling time to come into uh, a clinic today. The numbers are shocking. I think something like 75% of clinical visits in primary care are unnecessary and could be handled with a phone call. You're 100% right with the statistics I've seen. Yeah, we, we, have, a, um, we have a telehealth uh, component of our healthcare that virtually every one of my employees is used. They don't miss as much work. My turnover is lower. Absenteeism is way down. And I'm recruiting better because I now can tell them they can talk about their child's cough on the phone with a doctor 24 seven, two languages. But the one utilization rate of telehealth in the country is only 1%. I, every time I meet my employees, I used to talk about culture and how you're doing a great job. Now I talk about, have you used the telehealth? Cause it's just, it's such a logical, I mean, I, I, my ladies will go to work and they'll be sick. And I'll say, you know, you probably shouldn't be here sick. You should have called in this morning you remember you have a doctor at your beck and call. You just push this speed dial and, and they're going to help you figure this thing out. Um, it's, it, it saves me time. It saves me money. It saves them aggravation, the fear of losing their job because they're going to have to go to a doctor visit and wait two hours for a 
you know, for a Medicare doctor to see them or Medicaid doctor to see them. And that's all gone. That's all gone now. So, and, and the sensors are now keeping up with it. You know, you go into Best Buy and you see a whole aisle of devices that will transmit your diabetes reading, your heart rate, your blood pressure. You can use them to measure eye pressure, all these other things now that I can do from smart devices that we couldn't do five years ago. Yeah, it's getting exciting. So let me give you the um, magic wand to wave over healthcare. You have an interesting history in that you have taken very complex systems like defense, like intelligence, and you've waved a magic wand and you've roadmapped out a future for them that allows them to see how to stay com not only competitive, but way ahead of our, our uh, enemies so that we are, have the finest systems in place to take care of our citizens. What would your magic wand do in healthcare if you could just wave it tomorrow and apply your skills set to uh, healthcare to solve the problems out there? Well, I, I might have to get a bigger magic wand. Uh, Part of what you're doing in, with healthcare is, is we need to look about from a organizational process view of how healthcare is going. Your example with your uh, employees is uh, perfectly right. You know, we, we triage in healthcare the same way we did 100 years ago, and, and we need to change that process. We need to consider what an office staff might be. You know, I think there's a place within a clinic for technologists to augment the medical knowledge. Uh, and I can see more and more of that. As we move to where we integrate healthcare into our daily lives, uh, like what we see in the automobile, I think that role is going to become one. Physicians continuing education, boy. Uh, that's the place where I don't think I need a magic wand. I think I need something more like nuclear bombs. But I think physicians continuing education has to change. And we need the leaders within the physician's realm, like AMA and AHA and others, to step up and say, guys, we're in a new century with new ways to do this. Let us all become leaders of how to move this into the future and understand that some of the things like we were talking about earlier with like the voice assistance, one of the biggest challenges is we've got to understand how to speak languages that not only our colleagues understand, our patients understand, the insurance companies understand, but also that machines understand. I'm speaking with Dave Smith, who's the CEO of Strategic Pathways. Dave has uh, agreed to let me pay for some barbecue while he buys the tequila, uh, our favorite barbecue spot in Austin soon. Uh, Dave, let's, let's wrap up and ask you just a couple more questions of what would be a book or two that somebody can read where they can get a bearing on the future of healthcare um, that you think has a great perspective? Well, I, you know, you, you, you warned me with that question. I started putting a couple of books on the table and I ended up taking those off. Okay. And what I would tell you I would do is I would go into Google and I would set alerts in Google 
for different areas of the healthcare marketplace you want to understand. And every morning, Google Alerts will deliver to you nine or 10 articles mm -hmm. that are great to help you keep uh, up to date as opposed to books. By the time a book is out today in healthcare, it's out of date. You're right. You're right. Yeah. So I would change that. The other thing I would do, though, is I would begin to look at places which are analogous outside of healthcare. So if I'm wanting to see where I think surgery of the future is going to be with augmented reality, I would go and look at what is being done in the military with heads up displays and virtual reality and augmented reality. I would begin to go and look over in even things like shipping and retail where you see folks like Amazon totally changing the delivery process. This changes to the delivery process, I believe, is very critical for healthcare. But set up those type of Google alerts where it's delivered to your, your inbox every day, curated in a way where you see what is happening today, not what is happening a year ago. Last month, I was in a uh, local office here in Houston that is the leading animation studio for the human body. And uh, I was walking with a headset on to the human heart and molecules were running by me and interactions were happening and I could touch on them and they could explain it to me. Uh, boy, if I'm a medical student in the next five to 10 years as that rolls out, that's really going to be the way to learn biology, not memorizing note cards uh, in Latin. Well, and you look at what Blessing's doing there, and you take and combine that with the ability to do self-directed overlays of not only learning, but your current patient, where you can use that to rehearse what you're doing. And, you know, he has come a long ways with those animations, but they're fantastic. Well, they're, they're heading towards 3D um, and walkthrough and interactive. Um, let's let's figure out in a in a in a sentence what an important message you would like to transmit to our listeners who are physicians that are frustrated, maybe hospital administrators that are frustrated, patients even that are frustrated. What would be your message to them? Part of the real solution that we need to bring into healthcare is to relearn how to apply group intelligence. We began to do that when we were young. If we think about how we learned as children, all the way up through our degrees and others, we began to apply group intelligence and we began to understand the care abouts of each other. But somehow when we've gone into the workforce, when we've gone into our practices, we have forgotten what that group intelligence is all about. And if you apply that well and apply that to your suppliers, your partners, your patients, that will create a greater outcome that looks more like hockey stick innovation than really a flat uh, growth pattern that we typically see. Thank you, Dave. Um, how do people find you um, if it's not at the tequila bar drinking a nice Fortaleza? Well, well you know, uh, that, that beach is also a good place, but uh, email me at david at strategicpathways.com. Great. Thank you for being on the show. I've really enjoyed talking with you, and I look forward to another talk soon. Uh, thank you, and thank you to everyone. Thank you for listening. 
You want to shake things up? There's two things you can do for us. One, go to primarycarecures.com for show notes and links to our guests. And number two, help us spotlight what's working in primary care by listening on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and subscribing and leave us a review. It helps our megaphone more than you know. Until next episode.